I think people do develop toxicity in their love lives. In some cases, it's the baggage that we're bringing from previous relationships or the baggage that we're bringing from childhood. And in some cases, it's really specific to a relationship. Coming up, Ariane talks with sex expert Ian Kerner, next on Change Nation from the first 30 days. Welcome to The First 30 Days. I'm Ariane, and today we're talking about sex. The first 30 days of improving your sex life, that is. With me is Ian Kerner. He's a PhD, sex expert, and author of his new book, Sex Detox, Recharge Desire, Revitalize Intimacy, Rejuvenate Your Love Life. He's also the author of several other sex books, notably She Comes First, he comes next and is known as the sex doctor to generations X and Y. He's certified by the American Association of Sex Educators. He's been featured on the Today Show, Howard Stern, Cosmo, Redbook, Maxim and Men's Health, amongst others. Today, he's with us to provide his advice and wisdom to transform our sex lives. Ian, welcome to the first 30 days. My pleasure. My pleasure to be here. I should say that uh, He Comes Next, uh, the sequel to She Comes First, is actually coming out in paperback and being retitled. So not to create any confusion, but it's no longer He Comes Next, which for many people who don't know She Comes First is sort of just like, well, huh? Um, It's being retitled Passionista, The Empowered Woman's Guide to Pleasuring a Man. So hopefully it's a little more of a standalone title. Lovely. So, Ian, how did all of this journey into wanting to help people with their sex lives come about? Was it a personal mission? It was very much a personal mission. I was uh, born and raised in New York City, um, was actually uh, a literature major in college and was a literature professor at NYU. And um, I was in a relationship where, let's just say, my sex life ended up feeling like one long episode of Lost, okay? On a particularly perplexing during sweeps weeks when they're, like, really trying to mystify everybody. We were in a bad relationship. Intimacy was an issue. And we sort of didn't know where to turn. And we went to a number of different types of relationship therapists. And everybody was really pretty ill-equipped around the sex stuff. And I realized, you know, this is such an important area. And the typical cliche of a sex therapist, I think, is somebody in their 50s or 60s handling couples in their 50s and 60s. And I just felt like as a young person, um, there was such a, a need for that guidance around intimacy. So we went to see a sex therapist finally. The relationship did not survive, ultimately. But it was incredibly life-transforming. It was cathartic. I really had that when-I-grow-up moment, but I was already, you know, pushing 30 at the time. Um, So I had my when-I-grow-up moment, and uh, I just re-engineered and transformed my life. And I I really... I I was healed by being able to talk and communicate about sex, and I realized how many people are also leading lives of quiet desperation when it comes to their sexuality and how you can be lying in bed next to somebody and really feel a million miles apart from that person. The playwright Tennessee Williams said of the marriage bed, when a marriage goes on the rocks, the rocks are right there. They're all there pointing at the bed. And I really felt that was true. And I really decided my mission is going to be to help people and couples sort of smooth out the sheets, get rid of the rocks, one bed at a time. It's what I decided to do, you know, well over 10 years ago, and it's what I'm doing today. So your book coming out is called Sex Detox, 
For me, I assume detox is something that's bad and that I probably need to stop something. So how do you define a toxic sex life? Like, how would I know? Well, you know, first of all, I think of detox in today's culture uh, as something that uh, we do to cleanse ourselves, that we do to get rid of toxicity, that we do to uh, get healthy and renew. And um, you could be somebody who's desperately in need of a detox, and you could also be, you know, somebody who's pretty healthy but wants to just kind of flush the system a little bit and improve things and and not get too complacent. Um, I think people do develop toxicity in their love lives. I think we get into relationships, particularly long-term relationships, where sex becomes routine, sex becomes boredom, sex becomes non-existent, sex becomes joyless, sex becomes obligatory. In some cases, it's the baggage that we're bringing from previous relationships or the baggage that we're bringing from childhood. Uh, And in some cases, it's really specific to a relationship. But I do fundamentally believe that we develop toxicity in our sex lives. And hopefully my program uh, is a way to start addressing that and start sort of cleansing your sex life and renewing it. So for people who are listening out there who might think, I think I have a pretty good sex life. How how would you know or how would they feel inspired to go, you know what, I actually could take it to a better level or or a higher level? Well, I think that relationships... um, are really journeys. And I really believe that relationships uh, are about expanding. And for some reason, Ariane, I just, you know, I got a, an image in my mind of, um, you know, a, a plane taking off or a rocket ship taking off. And I think about that first burst of energy. And to me, that's very much like the beginning of a relationship when there's just really, really an excitement and a charge. And you're not just sort of circling in orbit. So what I would ask somebody is, um, do you still feel like you're, um, that there's momentum to your relationship, that there's expansion to your relationship? Um, Look, in some ways, being in a relationship, being a couple, getting to have sex, having good sex is kind of like ordering in good Chinese food. I mean, it sort of goes with like, hey, it's comfy, it's cozy, it's quick, it's satisfying. Um, There's a fortune cookie. I know the fortune's not going to come true, but I still will read it at the end. So I'm not, you know, trying to put down good, um, comfortable sex. But I think for many of us, we start to take it for granted. Um, We start to become a little tuned out and turned off. We start to become disconnected. And I think this book is about catching those moments, whether you're in a good relationship that may be starting to coast, or like most couples, frankly, in their sex lives. I mean, I just was part of, I'm going on the Today Show tomorrow, and you know, I don't know what gets edited in or what gets edited out, um, but it was about dry spells. And how long have you been in or are in a dry spell? Is it less than a week, more than a week, up to a month, many months? The vast majority of respondents, over 60%, said that they've been in a dry spell for more than a few months. So that's really my target. My target is really reaching the people where uh, this stuff has been building for for a little while and and needs to get worked out. For someone who is in a dry spell, I know the the basis of this new book of yours is a sex fast. Yeah, that's part of it. 
So how does the sex fast work? Well, basically, there's a 30-day program where I'm asking people to take sex off the table for a period of time, and it really goes back to、um, the principles of sex therapy. Masters and Johnson, who sort of pioneered sex therapy and sex research, had this.、Um, Concept called sensate focus, where couples、um, really focused again on the sensations of touch, touching, being touched, giving and taking, and they sort of suggested. I mean, really, sex therapy begins with, hey, maybe you have to take a step backwards in order to take a couple of big steps forward. So my idea was that you know, for so many couples,、um, they're caught up. In the toxicity of their sex lives, they're caught up in the sex that they're not having. They're caught up in a dry spell, in a rut. Instead of starving yourself, let's focus on using that as a period of nourishment. So, what I do is I ask couples to take sex off the table for a period of time. I have to be honest; in almost every case I've worked with, the people end up having sex before the 30 days, and they're like, "Was that bad? Did I make a mistake? We had this like naughty interaction, and things got racy."、Um, and I'm always like, "Of course, it's not about not having sex; it's about saying no to a certain kind of sex."、Um, so I ask people to take sex off the table for 30 days, and over the course of that 30 days, I really ask them to look at. Sex as more than just sex, but really to look at it as a multi-dimensional aspect of your life, where you know your sexuality and your sex life is affected by your previous relationships. It's affected by your current relationship. It's affected by your health. It's affected by your self-esteem and the images that we ingest daily. And I ask people to sort of turn that off for a period of time and look at each of these facets. And that's what I'm really doing for the 30 days. So every day. Um, there's a、uh, a new reading, a new focus,、uh, a new piece of sort of understanding、um, your sex life and what it means to be sexual. In your research in getting to this book, have you seen common trends in how women face this 30-day period, how men face the 30-day period?、Yeah. Um, and we're, we're talking specifically about the 30 days of wanting to change your sex life, or the 30 days of my program. Or- First 30 days of really wanting to take your sex life to a whole other level. What are the issues well, that me as a woman might come into you as a man? Well, I think the thing that I'm not sure if this is we might have to work our way around to the the heart of this topic, but I think the issues that I address、uh, very often in my work、um, as a therapist and as a counselor, as well as as a writer, and just becoming into contact with people,、um, are mismatched libidos,、um, sex ruts where one or both partners are sort of tuned out and um, turned off. Um, Um, a lot of a lot of anger.、Um, I deal with、uh, very often people who have drifted off into pornography or into、uh, infidelity, and so really the first thirty days of wanting to get your sex life back on track is how you're going to start. First of all, understanding the issues and how you're going to start communicating with your partner. One of the things that I found, especially for women. Is、um, when it comes to their sex life, is that they self silence a lot and they bottle up a lot. So a guy will often get very frustrated and will say something. You know,、um, we don't have sex anymore, or you're cold and frigid, or 
yeah, I'm into porn because look at the boring sex that we're having. And a guy will say something very inflammatory or very provocative as a way of um, kind of breaking through that ice with a sledgehammer. But I found with women that they'll really let the ice kind of build up and sort of thaw around them. And I think both, I think both responses, um, self-silencing, bottling up, um, as well as just lashing out, are unhealthy responses. Uh, and there have been a lot of studies to show how both men and women deal with anger and with emotion really can have uh, pernicious effects on your health. Um, but I think the, the, the first, one of the first steps is starting to understand the issue, starting to communicate about it constructively. Um, one of the things, one of the great things about the program is in taking, in being willing to take sex off the table for a little while, in a certain sense, it allows you to bring intimacy back on in new ways. So, you know, for, um, ex uh, you know, as an example, I deal a lot with um, low desire relationships or um, where anytime there's any intimacy, there's a threat of sexuality. But sort of knowing that you're going into this detox period, it sort of says, hey, well, we can hold hands or we can kiss or we can hug or we can fool around and it may lead to something more, but it doesn't have to. But sex no longer becomes overwhelming or threatening. What kind of personal issues do you see affect someone's sex life? What are the most dominant issues going on in the rest of their life that actually have a pretty big impact of what happens in the bedroom? Well, I think just asking the question um, is a very useful one because I think many people do tend to look at their sex lives in a vacuum. And the truth is that you're not going to have a satisfying sex life if you're not having the kind of life or the kind of relationship that supports having a satisfying sex life. So if you have a bad sex life, it usually means that other aspects of your relationship are are needing repair and other aspects of your life. Um, so what are some of the things? You know, just being angry at your partner. I think um, certainly in relationships, we tend to get caught up in sort of negative cycles of communication. That has a huge effect on intimacy and your sex life. So just being, feeling just negative and critical of your partner um, I think, you know, stress outside the bedroom is a huge inhibitor of libido uh, in women. Um, emotional stress, family stress uh, really often comes to the forefront and dampens desire. I think one of the things that women don't always understand about men is that work-related stress, financial stress, financial pressures have a huge impact on libido. So if a guy's, you know, not sure what his Christmas bonus is going to be or if he's going to be getting that raise in this new year or if, um, you know, he's worried about the mortgage payments and that crazy mortgage they took out five years ago flipping into something new, that could really lead to a complete shutdown of um, one's sex life. You know, the other thing is we are a culture that is increasingly... Um, um, becoming heavier and more obese, becoming more sedentary, uh, becoming more dependent on different types of medications that have all types of different uh, consequences uh, on our systems. Um, and I think increasingly we're leading sexually unhealthy lives. What are some of the fun ways to put sex back on the agenda? What are, what are some exciting things that people can look forward to doing, trying, buying, reading? Um, 
What are some? Well, I think you know one one of the things that you know you often one of the things that you often hear, and it's sort of become a cliche, but it really is true. Is that the mind really is the biggest sex organ, much more so than you know a genitals, you know, much much more so than our genitals. The mind and the brain is really the pathway to arousal. So the good thing is that it often takes very little to start really stimulating a much more exciting sex life. So as an example, I have, uh, I'll have a couple come in, and he'll say, you know, I really want to, uh, you know. Uh, live my fantasies, and uh, there's stuff that I want to do. And she's like, "Yeah, he wants to have a threesome, and I'm just not into it. And it's all we do is argue about it." And he keeps saying, "You know, this Christmas, give me a threesome. You know, this birthday, I want a threesome. You know, I, but it could be any sexual fantasy." Um, and then you start to talk about, you know, well, what is it that you're looking for? And in my office, it's a safe environment. So they start talking about the issues and also their interests. Turns out they'll go home that night and had and have sex because it, the actual session became that little bit of erotic stimuli. Nobody's going out and having threesomes. Nobody's going out and even really talking about it that much. But just um, just getting to share it in a little way. So one thing that I want to say is just just being able to communicate about sex. Uh, just being able to um, be a little creative about it. Like uh, recently, um, uh, recently a, a woman approached me and she said, you know, I have a very, very vivid fantasy life. Um, I'd love to be able to talk about this with my guy. I'm afraid he's really going to judge me. Um, I'm afraid he's going to think I'm some sort of, you know, kinky pervert. I, I said to him, just, you know, when you wake up one morning, say to him, hey, I had a sexy dream about you last night, you know, or I had a sexy thought about you. And just just give him a little taste of it, you know, just make it about a sexy dream, make it about a sexy thought. If there's something that if, if you're in a relationship and the foreplay really sucks or you don't like the way your guy kisses anymore or there's some sort of fantasy you want to share, I think one of the mistakes is um, – that we often jump to taking it seriously or we jump to giving feedback or we jump to giving instructions when really talking about sex should be sexy, creative, fun, and naughty and, and a little body. So I think just being able to talk about sex is, is actually a gigantic step. And I don't mean talking about it in the way that you hear on a TV show like have the conversation. I just mean being able to be fun and creative and be able to laugh at sex a little bit too. Is there a place that's better to talk about these things? Is it in the bedroom? Is it at the breakfast table? It's is definitely, it over email? Is it where is You know, it? email's not bad. You know, one thing that um one thing I've actually learned is that when it comes to to talking about sex, whether you actually want to give some sort of feedback or you even want to discuss something sexy, is that men are actually not very good at direct eye contact. Uh, men are side-by-side -side communicators. Women are really face-to-face -face communicators. And, you know, anthropologists have always said, well, women are very good with eye contact because, you know, over the course of eons, they've given birth, they look into the eyes of the babies, they coddle, they coo, they educate. But historically, 
historically, were men, when men were looking other people in the eyes, they were often going into battle. Um, and so that direct eye contact with a guy often triggers um, that call to battle reflex. And so men were most at ease. Men were most comfortable when they were sort of sitting, I don't know, sitting around a fire, carving up a carcass and, you know, telling stories. So I always um, say that men and women, I think, fundamentally uh, differ when it comes to eye contact and conversation. So I, so I don't think the best time to have a sex talk is looking somebody right in the eye over breakfast. I think it's in an easygoing, comfortable, often side-by-side manner, um, taking a walk, uh, taking a drive, uh, sitting on the couch. But, you know, not those moments when, you know, we have to look tenderly into each other's eyes or look at each other and have this serious conversation. One of the things I liked in your program, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about it here, is the concept of a love map. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit more about that. Um, I personally believe, and uh, science has borne this out, that really when it comes to our desires, to our turn-ons, to our turn-offs, that we all have a unique sexual fingerprint, a unique sexual template. I think part of the problem in contemporary culture, uh, and this is especially becoming true as we live in an age of internet access and the proliferation of pornography, uh, is that we become bombarded with sexual imagery, Um, images that sort of tell us what's sexy, what's not, what should make us feel sexy, what shouldn't. And, you know, look, it's always great to have access to information, but I think one of the dangers is we become sort of cut off from our unique turn-ons and unique turn-offs. And the idea of a love map is that you have a unique individual fingerprint, Uh, I'm sorry, you have a unique sexual fingerprint that's really a map to your turn-ons and your turn-offs and your desires and your fantasies. And not only do you need to get in touch with that love map, you need to fuse and join that love map and and be able to sort of navigate it together. So, So in the book, I have a lot of exercises that just help people to start to understand the terrain of their love map. And you'd be so surprised, um... How many people are really out of touch with what turns them on? I mean, I get a lot of, especially women who say, you know, I've never had an orgasm and I never masturbate. And, you know, I feel guilty over my sexual fantasies or talking about sex or having sexual thoughts make me blush. And I think one of the things that I do in the book is really give an individual permission to start exploring this stuff. And it's a lot of fun because I ask, you know, I I ask people like, well, what are some really erotically memorable experiences that you've had personally? What are some of the fantasies? What are particularly um, sexy images? And why do those images turn you on? And, you know, it doesn't take long before you start really navigating that love map and, you know, sort of looking at themes that Maybe we do find taboo in culture, but you know what? They really do turn us on and they really do drive us, whether it's thinking about submission or domination or voyeurism or exhibitionism. And nowhere in my book do I tell people that you have to go and act this stuff out or put yourself in sexually uncomfortable or dangerous situations. But unless you give your imagination free reign and unless you respect your love map and commit to exploring it and commit to in some way sharing it, with your partner, what you're going to end up with is um, 
very, very mechanical and a very, very dead sex life. And yeah, maybe the first, um, I mean, the other first 30 days is the first 30 days of infatuation, is the first 30 days of falling in love. And that's a head over heel, intoxicating, sort of opposite of toxic experience. Um, but if all you're going to rely on is, hey, in the first 30 days, we sort of had this, you know, chemical addled infatuation, it's really not going to get you very far. It's not going to lead to that journey that I talked about. It's not going to lead to that continued expansion of a relationship. If someone had chemistry at the beginning, do you think that chemistry is always there to be reconnected, refound, re-revealed? Well, it's, you know, every question you ask me, Ariane, is is simple and really big because what is chemistry? You know, a very, very dear friend of mine and colleague, Helen Fisher, you may have come across her work. Yeah. You may have interviewed her. She has a whole site out there, chemistry.com, that really brings people together um, based on analyzing and understanding chemistry, uh, from your capacity for thrill-seeking to whether or not you're a creature of habit or a creature of comfort. And so Helen really geniusly attempts to dissect chemistry. But you know what? A recent study just came out that showed that maybe the most important um, physical sensation for women in mate selection is actually smell and being able to literally scent somebody's genetic compatibility and being attracted to somebody based on their scent. So there are surprising things. Like my wife tells me constantly, I'm going to reveal a little tidbit because I frequently do. She's like, if you didn't smell good to me, you'd be so out of here. But it's like, you know, and I know if I get kind of, if we get mad and we have a fight, come on, hug me and take a smell because it's literally natural scent is really what drew her to me in many ways. And, and that is intoxicating. So chemistry, you know, I think it, I think Helen Fisher would sit down and she would give you a, a bunch of very, very compelling things that you can understand about chemistry, that you can understand about compatibility. But I think that there is always going to be something that is ephemeral, that is mysterious, that is instinctive. And, and I'll tell you, I've met a lot of couples who were extremely attracted to each other in the beginning, and there's a raw physical chemical attraction, and almost every other part of the relationship has, has petered out or gone bad, but they want to figure it out. And then I've met couples who never had that. And they were like, this person was my best friend in the whole world, or this person looked great on paper, this person was exactly who my mother wanted me to marry, this person is somebody that I love talking to, but we never really had chemistry. And you know what? I will always put my money on the couples who had the chemistry in the beginning, um, because I feel like if that thing wasn't there to begin with, um, it's going to be very, very hard to manufacture. What do you think are the, we can go with, Top one, two, three tips for uh -huh. men listening to the program. Okay. That are the most seductive things that they, they can either do or say okay. to a woman that will probably lead to sex. <laughs> okay. The top, one of the top most seductive things that a man can say to a woman that will probably lead to sex. Is it okay that my answers are a little roundabout and totally fine? Esoteric in yes. some cases. Because one of the things that I want to say is that one of the best things that a man can do to turn on a woman is to actually turn her off, okay? And let me explain by what I mean by that, which is that 
Some of the latest neuroscience has shown that as a woman is cycling through the process of arousal, from getting in the mood to foreplay to uh, orgasm, that parts of the female brain start to deactivate and literally shut down. So if you scanned a woman using a magnetic resonance scanning, fMRI scanning, throughout the process of arousal, parts of her brain that were sort of um, shining bright would literally start to go dim. And those are the parts that are associated with stress, with emotional anxiety, um, with having to get stuff done, with chores. And so for a woman to cycle through the process of arousal and ultimately have an orgasm, those parts of the female brain have to kind of shut down. And so one of the ways a guy can turn a woman on is by helping her turn off. And by that, I mean setting an environment where she feels relaxed, uh, where she feels uh, trusting, uh, where there's no anxiety. Um, so what does that translate into? Um, you know, not leaving your dirty socks strewn all over the place, not leaving a sink full of dirty dishes, not saying, you know, I'm going to try out this new kind of lingus technique that I read in Ian Kerner's book, She Comes First, because it sounds so hot. And that's the first thing I'm going to do. I've literally had women have come up to me and said, guys have tried to seduce me by saying I read She Comes First. It's a good book, but it's not the thing that makes me want to go have sex with them. So I think, first of all, I would say to men, how can you really set that environment for relaxation, trust, letting go? Letting go is a key. The letting go, the deactivation. The other thing that is part and parcel of that deactivation process is being able to distract the brain from what's going on in reality. What is one of the best ways to distract the brain? It's fantasy. Dreaming is really one of our brain's ways of distracting itself. Fantasy is a key way of being able to distract the brain from its present issues and get it into that um, letting go state. And in fact, you know, men really don't fantasize much during sex unless um, unless there's unless they're really bored and they're they need artificial stimulant to sort of turn them on. Most men get very focused on the sex um, that they're having. But I've interviewed a lot of women who say the only way I can really enjoy sex with my guy who I love is by getting a, getting a fantasy going in my head, by sort of thinking my way to orgasm and through orgasm. So the other thing I want to say to a guy is creating an environment where uh, a woman can really fantasize and share her fantasies. I think there's nothing sexier than being able to say, I had a sexy thought about you, or I had a sexy dream about you, or here's what turns me on, or here's a little something uh, that I think about with you. I think that, you know, forget going out and buying, you know, tons of lingerie or buying, you know, the new rabbit vibrator or the Hitachi wand or, you know, uh, a vibrator that connects to your iTunes, your, a vibrator that connects to your iPod and is syncopated to rhythm. Forget all of that. Just being able to share a piece of your love map. I am convinced is the sexiest thing in the world. So what did we say? Creating a, a very a context for letting go and deactivation and trust and relaxation. Um, being able to uh, share fantasy, to uh, stimulate that. Um, I, I think it's also um, about um, – about being able to make a woman feel sexy and desirable and 
beautiful and loved 24 hours a day. You know, desire is not the 30 seconds leading up to sex for all the guys out there listening. Desire is not just the kiss on the lips, the touch on the breast, and the hand down the pants. Desire is sort of all the moments in between. Desire is everything. Desire is 24-7. It's the beginning, middle, and end of sex and everything in between. You know what my next question is going to be, right? You don't? You're looking for something, what, I don't know. Do you want me to? (laughs) No. My next question is, what is it that women Mm. need to know about seducing a man? Of course. Um, Well, I think that there are a lot of men. What do women need to know about seducing a man? You know, and I think I hope one of the things you're probably seeing is that I probably over intellectualize everything. I don't come in with a list of product recommendations. I have no hot tips on lingerie unless Cosmo's calling me and asking me to to come up with them. But you know, uh, my my true philosophy is really about stimulating the brain and understanding the brain and sort of if you know somebody's brain, if you know somebody's mind, their body will follow. Um, And I think that there are a lot of cliches out there about male sexuality. I think, you know, one of the cliches is that guys always want it, guys or dogs, you know. Um, uh, There have been a lot of studies to show that uh, married men uh, or men in long-term relationships have lower testosterone levels than single men of the same age. And so... Uh, you can't assume that a guy, um, is, especially a guy in a relationship, is always going to want it, is always going to be turned on. I mean, I think I'd love to have Helen Fisher here because she would say, well, there's an evolutionary reason for that. Once a guy's in a relationship and, you know, having children or about to have children, you know, nature doesn't want him to fool around and spread his seed elsewhere. Nature wants him to focus. And that means naturally lowering some testosterone levels. And, um, but I, I, I don't think that a woman should assume that uh, men always want it. I don't think that uh, a woman should assume that, you know, the quickest way to turn on a guy um, is, you know, uh, via his penis. Uh, I don't think that um, women uh, – it's very funny because the, the two issues I deal with most with men are uh, rapid ejaculation and erectile disorder. And you talk to a woman and you – get her take on these issues. And, you know, most women in long-term relationships aren't particularly happy with, with the e- either either state. But um, I think a lot of women will say, well, if he rapidly ejaculates, uh, it means, you know, uh, he's passionate for me still. He still wants me. He still has a lot of desire. He can't control himself. That's how how sexy I am. Uh, whereas if a guy loses his, his erection, she's likely to say, what's wrong with me? Um, why, aren't, why aren't I desirable? What's he thinking about? Is he cheating? Is he going to cheat? What, what can't I do? What am I not doing uh, to make him erect? And I, and I want to say that men and their erections are, are much more complex than, than media often uh, leads us to believe. The other thing that I want to tell women is you kind of got to Throw away your Hallmark uh, card version of uh, Valentine's Day romance. Um, Relationships, as they evolve, become built on a foundation of trust, dependability, 
predictability, responsibility. You know, right now uh, I know that I have to get home by six o'clock to help my wife with the kids, and tomorrow she's going to drop the, one of the, my sons off at school, but I'm going to pick him up for lunch. And you know, there's a lot of transparency in our relationship, and there's a lot of love, and a lot of that love is based on dependability, responsibility, and being there for each other. But lust, attraction, desire are based on the opposite. They're based on unpredictability, spontaneity, newness, danger, not knowing. Relationships are based on knowing. Lust is based on not knowing. And so what I want to tell a woman is when you turn on a TV show or you pick up a magazine and it talks about, you know, long dinners staring into each other's eyes, walks holding hands, you know, rose petals strewn on the bed – those things may be nice, but they're not getting at the fundamental unpredictability, spontaneity, newness, and danger that both men and women crave. But I can tell you, men definitely crave it and seek it out, and that's why men cheat. What about for the singles out there that are probably craving sex Right. that might pick up this book, but mm-hmm. what they're really looking for is a partner? Yeah. How, how does someone who's single – feel sexy, stay sexy, still experience their sexuality without necessarily being with a partner right now. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting because one of the cliches about singles today is that, A, there's a lot of casual sex going on and that if you're single and that if you're not having sex, you're probably horny and want it all the more. But in truth, certainly for women, less so in men, but it's true for men as well, that the less you are having sex, um, uh, the less you're likely to have sexual thoughts. Uh, you're more likely to have uh, your testosterone levels go down. So one of the things that I want to debunk is that, you know, a single person, especially a single woman, is necessarily a randy woman who's interested in having a lot of casual sex. One of the things I talk about in sex detox, particularly as it applies to dating, is the neurochemical roller coaster that can ensue. Um, there's really, um, w- w- when, when you're dating, uh, when you're going from date to date, when you're online, you know, in doing online dating and looking for dates, there's a lot of unpredictability. Um, there's a lot of anxiety. Uh, and what happens it is, is it lowers serotonin levels in the brain. It raises dopamine levels. It raises norepinephrine levels. And it actually creates... Um, a kind of, it can create a mania, it can create, uh, it can lead to depression, it can even lead to addiction if you become the kind of person who's like, well, I got to go on another date this week, or why am I, why am I not getting poked or flirted with or winked at on one of these sites? And really, part of my main value in um, creating a dating detox for single people is, is to help them address the sexual side of things, but also to give them a kind of a cooling out period and a breathing period. And I think one of the first, one of the things that the first 30 days that you would do on a dating detox is kind of get off that mating merry-go-round, cool out, get a bit of perspective and sort of uh, recalibrate and reset your aspirations in a realistic way. My last question of for, okay. for singles. Okay. For someone who is single, mm-hmm. what do you think they can do to turn on their sexuality so that that resonates, it becomes attractive, men or women start sensing that 
in them, given the fact that it doesn't necessarily improve, include a partner. It really includes things that they're either thinking, their mind, how they're looking, appearing, talking. It's the, the question is sort of staying sexy. The, the question is how to be, feel, and stay sexy when you're single to increase your chances of radiating that and ultimately attracting the right kind of partner. I think I, I meet a lot of single people who are so preoccupied with dating, whether or not dating uh, their dating life is working out, uh, when they're going to have their next date, that they're actually really burnt out and bored with dating without really realizing it. It's sort of like um, different movie theater, same movie that's been playing, whether it's the same group of friends, the same kind of dates, dating the same types of people, bringing the same anxieties, leading the same sort of serially monogamous life. And I think, you know, one of the best things that you can do is just kind of mix up that whole routine, add newness, um, add add novelty to it. So I, I think starting to lead a more passionate life, starting to really pursue interests, um, to do things that are going to put you in an environment where it's not just about is this somebody who's dateable, but you're actually engaged in activities and you're building and enriching your life. I mean – I I meet sometimes I meet women who um, are very very pretty or attractive, um, but there's a lack of vitality or there's starting to be sort of like a a hardness or a numbness that's sort of starting uh, to calcify and and I think that they're at a stopping point in their own life. Um, you know, and sometimes it can be about changing your dating patterns. You know, in the book, um, Sex Detox, as part of my dating detox, when you're sort of done with that period of introspection uh, and recalibration, I talk about going on 10 first dates without the expectation of ever having a second. There's actually some good signs to prove that you need to really go on 10 dates with a wide variety of different types of people to sort of set what's called your aspiration level and determine your mate value. But without getting into all of the science and the cognitive heuristics of people who are thinking about dating, um, it's really important to kind of get outside of um, a mold or get outside of your type. Uh, I'll give you another way of thinking about it. I I, I believe that dating... um, I, I believe that dating, being in a relationship, finding love, it's kind of like buying a piece of art. You want to go out there and you want to be struck by something that so moves you, that so inspires you, that gives you so much joy that you want to take it home, frame it in your living room. But I think especially uh, in today's mating market, we walk around with our frames looking to fit people into it. So do you fit into my frame? Are you somebody that I should date? Do you fit into this tiny little four-sided frame? Um, And I think we kind of got to throw out the frames and see fresh, see with a fresh set of eyes. Ian, one of the things we do here at the first 30 yeah. days with all of our experts, we we have what we call our three signature questions, uh-huh. which are the same three questions for all our experts across okay. every life change. Uh, so they're not specific to your subject and expertise. Okay. So the first question is, what is the belief that you personally go to 
in times of change? I really believe that there are times in life where you have to hit bottom to rise up from the ashes and how you deal with that adversity. I've had a number of times in my life where the biggest thing, the most important thing to me fell apart. And all I wanted to do was crawl into bed, pull a blanket over my head and never come out. And I was besieged by dark, stormy, brooding thoughts. And I think being able to be optimistic about life, being able to be entrepreneurial about life, being able to believe that I could reinvent myself, that starting now I can really reinvent myself, uh, has been a fundamental guiding principle. Um, and it has really um, emboldened me, whether it meant giving up everything that I was doing to become a sex therapist, whether it meant getting out of a relationship that I had been in uh, for nearly seven years, being engaged, that I knew just wasn't right, whether it was being able to you know, write in the first page of my first book, Confessions of a Premature Ejaculator for All the World to See. Whatever it is, it was, it was, it was taking a risk and, and being able to see my way through those moments where I just wanted to tune it all out and shut down. Here's the next one. Fill in the sentence. The mm -hmm. best thing about change is... The best thing about change is unpredictability and novelty. I'm a little bit of an unpredictability junkie. I, I, like, I like newness. I like novelty. It gets my mind stimulated. It keeps me alert. Um, not that I'm any kind of thrill seeker, but I'm not good with routine and monotony. So to me, change is a constant opportunity for expansion. What's the best change you've ever made? One of the best changes I ever made was dropping one fiancé and finding my wife or giving up one job and going for another thing or quitting my job and becoming entrepreneurial, um, investing in myself like I'm building a business or trying to build a brand. I actually think one of the biggest changes I ever made for myself was being able to look back on my childhood and all the issues that I thought had formed my personality and my struggles, namely having uh, an alcoholic father who left when I was very young, who was very charismatic, who really overshadowed all of my childhood and most of my adult years. The biggest change I was able to make was seeing that that was not the real story, but was in fact a different set of relationships that had really guided me and formed me. And really being able to revise my understanding and my version of my story of myself. We've been very fortunate to be speaking with Ian Kerner. Ian, I want to thank you. Absolutely. I've learned some things personally. <laughs> I know a lot of people out there have learned some things for, for their sex lives, their self-esteem and everything that sex Great. Thank you very much. certainly touches. Your new book is called Sex Detox. Go buy it either in bookstores or also visit his website at iankerner.com. That's I-A-N-K-E-R-N-E-R.com. I'm Ariane. Thanks for listening. And for all sorts of other inspiring, interesting interviews with experts, please visit us at first30days.com. Thanks for listening to Change Nation from the first 30 days. Please visit us on iTunes in the Society and Culture podcast section under Philosophy. Remember to take time to leave us feedback about the show. We'd love to know what you think.
Change Nation is a production of the first 30 days incorporated. Copyright 2008. All rights reserved. <laughs>